I thought of a funny, uh, I actually tried, tried to think of a funny joke to start us off, not a joke, make a funny comment about this. So like, did we really, uh, like make a Mark Marin reference in 2021 and think that would be like the catch of this episode? <laughs> I didn't really think that would be the catch. Who are you I guys? That was just like kind of what this is. What is this? Is? But these aren't really my guys. Are these your guys? Well, not in the sense of Mark Marin. Like I think your guys are supposed to be like Charles Bukowski or something. Like you know. I thought it was like the guys that you like. I have guys, but they're yeah, not they're, these. And they're not these not people. These. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the, so yeah. Anyway, the point is, I don't think anyone even really remembers Mark Marin. He's like he's already. Uh, has I'll he say. fallen off the map that hard? I mean, when's the last time you heard about Mark Marin? But um, only when people make the "Who are you guys?" Jokes. Yeah, who are your guys? That's the only thing that matters, right? Yeah. Um, no, I was gonna say, uh, yeah, the, this isn't really like a "Who are your guys?" thing. This is more like a like a like a Vox explainer or a listicle. It's a challenge. You gave yourself some homework this week, Zeke. All right, explain to us what we're doing here. So we're building a little syllabus of radical political philosophy. Can think about it that way. Yeah, can you, uh, uh, obviously, let's, let's start by, by explaining what that is. Yeah, so we've got some ground rules. But basically, this is the thing that I find annoying sometimes, is like you're looking for a reading list or something, you're trying to figure out about a topic, and, and there are lots of people that have lists, or there's like crowdsource lists. This is something that happened a lot around the summer and all of the stuff that was blowing up last summer mm, street right. protests and whatnot there are all these reading lists and everybody was trying to get read up on on radical political philosophy and stuff so we're about a year late i guess <laughs> on this but you know you get these huge expansive lists right that are just like what's every book anyone can think of about uh about this topic right and that just ended up like meaning that everybody read that stupid uh what's your name book uh how to be a light uh the human resources book everybody got upset about yeah white fragility yeah white yeah. fragility right yeah yeah so we're gonna kind of try and do something a little bit more curated than that we're gonna sort of the task for this this uh this episode is to build something like a little syllabus so it's like if you don't know anything about of a radical political philosophy each of us have had to pick sort of three people that we think are important or three books that we think are important and, uh, you know, give us a, a ground for what the fuck that means and what it needs to do around Okay, so what do we got? We got we, we just sort of pulled a definition from a university catalog for what radical political philosophy means, right? Yeah, I need this. I, I wasn't I wasn't one hundred percent sure myself. Um, I don't what, think anybody is, yeah, right? So we what, just what uh, so so for the purpose of this exercise, we have decided that a radical political philosophy is one that argues that significant change down to the roots needs to take place in order for a just political regime to exist that's it so anything that meets that criteria we're going to call a radical political philosophy does that sound fair yeah it does um I, uh, how much do you want to go into what all that means so it's just those few words that you just said there well what do you want to say about it 
Well, down to the roots, right? I mean, that's, that's a bit of a poetic way of putting it. Um, how, how, how can we kind of just briefly um, understand how, how, how radical does somebody... Well, like presumably radical change would mean, you know, well, I don't know what it would mean, right? Like, I think that's partly, partly what's at issue in radical philosophy, right, is what, what needs to happen. But, you know, someone who argues for reform wouldn't really be a radical. Reforms being basically part of the, the ongoing system that we have. That's how we make changes happen within, without, without burning down the house, right? Is we have, right. Um, you know, a legislative process and we introduce new ideas and then we debate them and, and, and that's how it's supposed to work, right? So uh, a radical uh, political uh, philosophy wouldn't um, settle for that. I, I thought that, w- I thought that would be fair think. to say, yeah, right. Yeah, one would not think. But, but basically the, the two roots thing, it just comes from like, that's the root of the word radical is it means like root in Latin. So it just means like we're gonna, um, whoever, people who claim to be radicals, you know, they just, they generally tend to take on the mantra or, or I guess other times people assign it to them, but they, they don't take themselves to be sort of really no reformers playing within the rules of the game. They wanna change the rules basically. Does that make sense? Okay, well, I, I learned uh, an etymological point there. I didn't know that about the word uh, radical. Uh, fair enough, yeah, that sounds good. All right, so. Uh, that was one ground rule. So it has to be radical in the sense that it has to posit that some other configuration of politics has to happen in order for justice to be you know, instituted. Uh, we have to change society down at the root level. Uh, that's one. And then the other rule was no marks, basically. Right? <laughs> yeah, and why not? Well, I mean, I think, I think any syllabus on radical philosophy, like, you know, it starts with marks. Would you think that that's fair? That, that so much radical philosophy has its root in the sort of Marxist tradition at this point in history. Like it just, you know, it's like this viral theory that spread across the globe in the 19th and 20th century, such that it sort of, um, you know, if you want to really understand what's going on with radical political philosophy, you should probably read some Marx. So neither one of us gets to pick Marx was kind of the rule. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like when you're playing fantasy hockey in the 80s, you couldn't pick Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a given. It's a given. It's going to be there. Uh, no matter whose list this is, someone's probably going to say Marx. So no, no fair just saying Marx. Yeah. So that said, you know, uh, if you were going to pick a Marx book, well, like to introduce somebody to Marx, what would you, what, 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 would, what would be the, the Marxist work you would pick? Um, for me, it, yeah, it's, it, my, I had to like stretch my, my memory to see what I've actually, what I actually know. Um, I think the Marx book that um, is most like kind of Marxy to me is uh, oh, what is it even called the political and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 or something like that. Yeah. Um, that it, it's, it's sort of like a, it, it's like kind of like collected notebooks or whatever collected like uh, uh, um, notes. But in that, I remember reading, uh, you know, he kind of does broadly, he sketches out kind of some of his really galaxy-brained stuff. Um, some of the stuff that, that you sort of, like, he tries to give you a picture of what he's really selling um, in terms of the, this, this way that society is going to change under his um, system and, and what, what it might even 
in some sense look like. So that would be the one that I would go with. Yeah. And that one's fun too, right? Like it's not like, uh, I mean, I think capital is pretty fun. Marx is a funny writer. And like, um, I, I remember being surprised by how funny Marx was when I first started reading it. But, um, but yeah, those 1844 manuscripts are kind of like, um, they're not intimidating. It's younger Marx. It's, uh, there's, there's a lot more emphasis on sort of, uh, lived experience and things like that and there is on sort of strange economic theory uh, but it gives you the as you say the, the galaxy brain the sort of like the metaphysical um you know sketch of of marx's theory of human nature and uh it's his sort of theory of history and all of that right yeah yeah so i, I think that's a good call the other one i would say is is the communist manifesto because you know just lays it out right. so yeah, so if we're if we're building a syllabus, I'd say those two books probably be be there, right? And then anything beyond that for Marx, then you'd uh, you could go and you can go. You know, there's tons of Marx to read. You can go read the Grundrisse and the German Ideology. You know, if you want to, Volume One of Capital and all that shit, right? Sticking with Marx for for a minute, like um, there are he has a just an outlarged well, that's not a word but a, he has a very large presence in the mind of in the collective minds of radical political philosophers philosophers since himself right yeah why say. do you think that is why do you yeah, think that is? i mean i i think i think that he was a particularly uh brilliant um analyst of capitalism and and given that we've lived in capitalism since then um you know, it's hard to, it's hard to critique it without stumbling over what he's already said. Um, and, and a lot of smart people have solved that problem by building on what he said, rather than um, trying to reinvent the wheel by taking something um, and moving, pushing it further. And it, and it just continues to bear the mark of that, of that idea, those ideas that he started with. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just so, it's like, it's so powerful, right? Like when, when you read his critique of, of any facet of capitalism, uh, it's so hard to read that and not just go like, oh yeah, that is exactly <laughs> what is happening to me. <laughs> um, you know, I remember that that's like in the 1844 manuscripts that his, his sort of explanation of the alienation of labor um, as the kind of lived condition of anybody who works for a wage of, of uh, the way you confront the world is something alienating and alien to you even though you contribute to making it right uh as sort of being the source of your misery like um you know those kinds of ideas like once they're in your head it's so hard to think about the world from a different perspective <laughs> like they're yeah. they're such powerful tools of critique right now. yeah yeah so i mean i think that um you know before we get into going through our list here i'll just say like uh you know inevitably with him looming so large, um, I thought that it was unavoidable to to deal with with um, Marxism in some of these picks. But there are other ways to um, there are other contexts in which people can genuinely form a a, a, a theory of resisting or of not resisting, but but of transforming. Um, social relations other than from the point of view of labor and workers and uh so um as big as marx is i think we'll hopefully convincingly look at some other ways totally although i gotta say like two out of my three are 
if not, they're not necessarily Marxists, but they are, you know, 100% uh, children of Marx or something. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, Another thing. They grow up in a world, you know, my, one, if I have guys, one of my guys is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and he sort of said, um, you know, Marx is the philosopher of our time the way Aristotle was the philosopher of the Middle Ages. Like, <laughs> they, he just sort of gets the... He sketches out the terms in which everything else is going to have to happen. Like you're right. not going to, um, you're not going to, you know, get too far outside the framework uh, of the 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 systems of exploitation that Marx described. You might, you know, argue with him. Mm-hmm. He's he's the the big uh, the big boss man at the end of your you know, argument or whatever. Right. Yeah. And one of the thing I, I, I thought of, we were talking about ground rules. This isn't really necessarily a ground rule, but I was just thinking about this a moment ago. Um, because I was kind of toying around with the idea of like some kind of, um, I guess you'd call them right wing uh, intellectual figures. And none of them actually made it onto my list. Um, and, you know, I, I think my, my explanation for that is that, you know, this idea of like dissident right wing thought is, a lot of times turns at the it turns into a sort of charlatanism at the end of the day it's it, it's it's too it it it, it um, reinforces existing power structures too much so um uh you know i was thinking of a few names that i think are, are genuinely uh radical but um i, I wound up not choosing them um, and I don't all know right well let's let's save them for the end like i think at the end we should have a little honorable mentions list because like you know, obviously we're picking three each. We're, there's going to be lots we're not covering. Um, and, and so like, you know, and this should be a little call to action for our listener out there. Hey, listener, uh, tweet at me. Anything you think that I, that, that we left off the list. What's that handle again? Uh, at bird fanzines. F-A-N-Z-I-N-E-S bird fanzines. Yeah. Cause I mostly just tweet pictures of birds. Yeah, bird as in um, the kind of flying animals, and yeah. uh, fanzines as in um, periodicals. Um, periodicals made by fans. Yeah, of a of a of a supportive nature. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, cool. that's the call to action. Get your pen and paper out. Start start making your notes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's do this. Um, we didn't decide who's going first. Well, uh, my first book comes from eight. Or 1781. How about you? Well, my oldest book? What's your oldest book? Uh, 1510. 1510? Yeah. Does it fit in the story to start? What do you think? Should we go chronologically? Or should we go... I was did, actually, do you have a story that you're trying to tell that it fits later in? No, I mean, I was going to go backwards. Um, because it, you know, oh. it's it, the old one is a bit of a, a curveball. I thought I thought it was just kind of like an interesting one, and it's a kind of out of left field. But I think it yeah, absolutely 15, sums it up. Uh, I think it absolutely sums up what what we you know what we need to kind of big picture think about when we think about radical political theory. Um, I thought I was being pretty ballsy picking 1781. I was like, I oh, pre Marx. Ah, I'm going to get them. We're already dangering, no. are we? Okay. All I right. Yes. Um, all right. Well, so, yeah. would you, well, where do you want to, what do you think? 
Um, okay, well, I want before we start talking about Marx, I want to talk about Mike. I think. Okay, then so, you, should, you should go first then. Okay. Because I was going to lead with a Marxist. All right. So I wanted to I wanted to go pre-Marx because I think I think this is interesting, and so this is like a this is a little tidbit that I came across. Uh, as a result of sort of trying to figure out what we meant by radical political philosophy and doing some aggressive Googling, uh, I discovered that the original use of the term radical in the political realm was made by, or you know, one of, I don't know what the exact original was, but certainly one that predates Marxism. Uh, and, and as far as I can tell is the first time a group of a organized political party called themselves radical was the radical political party uh, in England in the 1780s, uh, based on the thought of none other than Jeremy Bentham. Uh, Jeremy Bentham and James Mill, the fathers of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, please. And so, you know, I'm, I picked this one because uh, I think, like, when I teach utilitarianism today, it's like the air that people breathe. Like, it is. It is like um, not radical, right? It's very much just like, oh, this is what we already think. Right? And so like the basic doctrine of utilitarianism uh, put forward by Bentham, it's very simple. He simply thinks like, you know, when you're governing a country or uh, when you are yourself acting, right? There's sort of two, two breeds of it, making rules and, and legislating and then morality right so his big his, his big book is called the principles of uh, morality and legislation okay and uh, his, his claim is just like do the thing that maximizes the most pleasure for the most people so it's like you know uh, think about the consequences of the action or the consequences of the law and then ask, are those consequences more pleasurable or less pleasurable than if you hadn't done them, right? And if they are, you should do them. You're obligated to do them. And if they're not, you shouldn't, right? And so, like, you know, this just seems like baby morality, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Yes, right? it does. Yeah. But at the time, it was put forward as kind of, like, absolutely radical and absolutely um, liberatory. Like, uh, Bentham thought of himself as a kind of like, you know, uh, emancipator, right? Because, uh, you know, so it, like I say, this comes out in 1781, right? So this is sort of the end of the Enlightenment. This is like, you know, this is it's high Enlightenment, really. This is Immanuel Kant is writing at the same time as this, right? Um, in Germany, right? Like, this is, this is sort of high uh, rationalist, humanist. Um, period in Europe, right? And so Bentham is putting this forward as a way of running a country according to a kind of scientific uh, use of statistics in a kind of new way, right? And so, like, um, the thing that's interesting about it, I think, is it's like it, it sort of completely reimagines what politics is about, right? If you think of a kind of you know, classical conception of politics that we might think of with Plato and Aristotle and then, you know, kings and so on and so forth, right? It's that, like, the purpose of a state is to together, you know, if it's democracy and you're an Athenian or whatever, right? Like, you go and you, 
you uh, learn how to live well together and instantiate justice together, right? And it's only within a state that humans get to do that. And it's not necessarily clear from the outset what justice is, right? And we can get it wrong, and that's a bad state, and we can get it right, and that's a good state, right? But it kind of comes down to this sort of like strange sort of conception of human nature that says like the thing that we're most meant to do is sort of tarry with the question of justice and what it is and working it out, right? And, and Bentham basically says, we don't need to do any of that shit, right? Um, we have science, right? It's no longer about trying to interpret, um, you know, the meaning of the good and, and make it real on earth or whatever, like whether that's God's uh, heaven on earth or whatever, right? It's just like, no, no, no. We have a totally scientific understanding. You're a body, you feel pain and pleasure. Nature has endowed you with like the ability to figure out what's good. It's called pleasure, right? <laughs> and like, you know what's bad, it's called pain, right? And so um, we don't have to like, we don't have to have these institutions that are there to try and like, you know, figure out what's good. We know what's good, right? And so now it's just a matter of managing um, through the use of, you know, measurement and statistics, what, what measures and what institutions and what sort of programs are gonna raise the level of pleasure in the population. And so like that was a completely different way of thinking about it, where you sort of completely remove the idea that there's some end uh, that the state is kind of like, you know, bound towards, whether that's like, you know, um, the glory of the king, right, or whatever, right? Like that there's something that holds us together uh, beyond the sort of individual, um, yeah, pleasures and pains of, of the community members, right? There's nothing, he sort of said, like, a community is a fiction, right? Like, does that sound familiar to you, Zeke? <laughs> yeah, it sort of right? sounds a little bit like a certain uh, Thatcher phrase, yeah. I recall. Right? Yeah, and so this was like, this, this is really the root of that kind of, like, what we now call neoliberalism, right? Which is the idea that a government's job is just to kind of manage things, right? right. And, and keep it running so that everything works and everybody can go about their business, right? And that was, that was really sort of Jeremy Bentham's idea, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, so I'm picking Bentham as a radical uh, because like, you know, in some sense it's worth noticing that like the world we live in now is totally fucking weird and radical and strange, right? Um, when you think of what politics has been throughout the history of humanity. Right? Like this is a relatively new thing. Um, it, it's sort of like given voice as a radical new change, right? Um, and you know, the conservatives were people who wanted the kings to came kick around, right? Now we think of conservatives as people who want like basically Bentham things, right? Like basically they want to be left alone by the government and to, you know, pursue their liberty, right? Um, but but that's that's a radical idea, uh, you know, basically what. A little more than 250 years ago, right? And so, um, yeah, so, so Bentham is there to kind of remind us that we already live in this like crazy, weird, mixed up time. Right? Um, that is sort of like a, a radically new uh, way for humans to live together and way of thinking about politics. So that's my first guy, Jeremy Bentham. The principles, uh, the introduction to the principles of morals and legislation. And so like in that, in that, uh, it just, I would just, you know, say, like, if you're looking for something to read, read the introduction to the introduction, right? And he basically, he's sort of philosophizing with a hammer. He's sort of saying, like, 
look, any other justification anybody ever has for doing anything, it just boils down to that it makes them feel good, right? Or it makes other people feel good. And so like all we need to care about is the kind of like way things make us feel good and make us feel pain. Okay, it's reducible to the way we manage uh, that one thing, which is the pleasure and pain of, of the, you know, um, how does he put it, the aggregate of the members of the community. And so uh, if you just force everybody into one ball and then measure our pleasure level, all you got to do is make sure that that pleasure level kind of goes up as much as it can and doesn't go down. And that's good. Why, can I ask you why you, why you thought it was significant to, um, to, to pick this one before we talked about Marx? Before Marx is because it kind of precedes Marx. And I think it also like, you know, um, we often think of neoliberalism as being sort of opposed to socialism, right? And so like, uh, you know, like Bentham, Bentham didn't see himself as opposed to socialism, right? <laughs> Bentham was um, sort of on the side of, uh, you know, he, he sort of thought like the cause of human misery is all of this, you know, garbage tradition and these kings going to war with each other and this nationalism. Um, uh, what he called sinister ideas, right? Like basically he sort of thought there were a bunch of people at the top who were kind of like crumbled and old, right? And, and they had bad ideas and they were, they were the globalists or whatever, right? Yeah, right. And, and they were bad and we just had to replace, like because they were in control, um, you know, uh, we did things that were kind of irrational because of it was, was sort of like, because of the whim of this ruling class, right? And so he sort of said like, no, 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 we can, we can rationalize this, we can scientificize this, we can technicalize this, right? And so like, um, you know, Marx kind of shows up and says like, it has nothing to do with the ideas in people's heads, it's all about sort of structural um, class issues, right? That, that arise through history in the sort of dialectical process of, uh, of the development of civilizations or whatever. And, and um, yeah, I guess, so, so Bentham uh, does not think that, right? And, and he kind of comes from a time before that, right? yeah. Yeah, and you kind of gave us somebody who, to start with, who kind of helped set up the, as you said, the, the kind of world we live in, it's like the air we breathe. So, you know, when we're talking about radical politics now, I mean, yes, that Bentham was a radical thinker and a radical, political theorist of his time because he was lived in different times but now we're going to be essentially talking about or at least uh, any, anything that we're talking about after that era is going to be people for whom radicalism is against basically a kind of a, a liberal uh, world order right um, absolutely yeah uh, so so we now have the kind of a uh, we've, we've started out by talking about kind of the thing that grounds all all radical uh, potential change because it has to be against that. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned Marx, uh, who's, um, I, I feel I should point out, you know, he was, he was a freebie, but I feel I should point out anyway um, that his, his vision of, of social transformation was, you know, located in this thing, um, the working class, which was, you know, he, he, he sort of understood it as it's already, there, there's all these people, you know, engaged in industrial labor. And what's not there is like some kind of like unifying political consciousness among them that allows them to act out 
their kind of historical will to take to take charge and, and transform society um, on principles that would be better uh, if you're a member of that class, right? Um, so yeah, I wanted to start uh, with with somebody who I you know, for me has to be on a list of people of radical political thinkers because like she was super committed to the radical element of uh, of her thought of her of her doctrine. She was an Orthodox Marxist. Uh, I should, I'll tell you her name, Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa uh, Luxemburg. Okay, excellent. Yeah, she's uh, she was a uh, like a Polish Jew. Um, lived like uh, she was born sometime in the late 1800s and then was killed by Nazis. So she lived through this phase of like, you know, Bolshevism, the Russian Revolution, and then the sort of lead up in the 30s to the Second World War, at which point I think she was in Germany and then the Nazis killed her. That's where, where she was. Um, she was a, a Marxist uh, in the most sort of um, uh, like, official sense right like we we talk about the left today it's like this kind of it can mean a lot of things um she was very specifically a marxist she was engaged in this project of um organization of parties and conspiracies within european states to bring about marxism um as a, a in terms of seizing state power um uh, and in her in her projects, I think mostly it was through political parties rather than through armed struggle. Although I think there was a bit of overlap. Um, she, uh, you know, she she lived through um, the Russian Revolution. I was and, say, wasn't she something of a, a armed revolutionary herself? Yeah, exactly. And and uh, although so she, she was, you know, she was a, 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 a like a, a a comrade or a compatriot in, uh, of the of the Bolsheviks as they seize power, but later would take Lenin and the Bolsheviks to task over things like vanguardism. Um, Can you explain what that is? Like the, uh, like vanguard, vanguardism was, was, was how Lenin kind of um, imagined uh, seizing power and, and transforming uh, society through political means by having a, 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 a leadership, uh, uh, that were of, of sort of like trained political operators and, and officers um, who would lead the masses uh, to, to seize power, state power um, from the bourgeois state. So like it, it essentially created a, 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 a party elite. Um, at least that would be uh, Rosa Luxemburg's uh, kind of uh, interpretation of it um, in, in which, you know, you have, um, intellectual superiors and then you have the masses who are kind of in a sense supposed to do what they say and and carry out the the uh the the revolutionary act according to this prescription coming from the vanguard um and these are people schooled in uh dialectics right in in the, in the marxist um analytical system uh who are supposed to understand principles metaphysical principles of, uh, that that are supposed to guide you through historical change. Um, uh, and in Germany, so this is, this would be after, after the Russian revolution, um, Luxembourg was in Germany trying to um, contribute to, uh, you know, something similar happening there. Um, and there was a socialist party, but they were, um, they were 
they were tending in a direction towards sort of parliamentary and and uh, uh, institutional um, uh, accommodation, right? They were they were working within the political system, and uh, there was a guy in particular, uh, what was his name Bernstein, Edward Bernstein, or something like that, um, who was the leader of the Socialist Party, and uh, he was um, he basically was advocating for kind of things like. Um, the right, like trade union rights as an end in themselves. Like, like once we get rights for trade unions, then we have achieved what the socialists should want to achieve. And uh, Luxembourg comes out with a, but the book that I'm going to kind of point to here um, is called uh, social reform or revolution question mark. So she's posing, she's posing the question, which should it be right? Social reform or revolution. And, and it's a polemic against social reform. Um, and what she, what she basically, uh, what her issue is, is not, not that, um, not that she has any problem with socialists engaging in, um, political, um, like, uh, projects within the system because she thinks, you know, okay, you're trying to, you're trying to get union, like trade union rights. That's good. That means that you're spending your time working with other socialists to get something done. That's developing class consciousness. That's getting you a step forward, developing, the systemic structures that are going to help this working class understand itself and then, you know, kind of coalesce, begin to self-realize. Um, but she says that people like Bernstein mistook the, uh, uh, the means for the end. So like, it's, it's like, that's the means by which the working class begins to transform into something new and this like kind of radical social change um, through practice. But, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the reformers were satisfied in, in getting the reform and they, they didn't see it as a, as a step towards, um, this like kind of more revolutionary outcome. Um, so, you know, I think, I think she's, uh, like she's, um, iconic in, in her, in her commitment to down to the roots, right? Like there's, there's, this is an era in which there was a lot of possibility in the quote Marxist project in Europe, especially, um, you know, there were some, some successes like the USSR and, and, and others. Um, so, you know, there were, there were many people who had committed their lives to socialism and to, to working class uh, political uh, activism and, and, and organizing who were kind of, um, you know, they were keeping their minds open to, well, maybe this is what I want, or maybe that's what I want. And she held fast to the idea that what you were really after was total revolution from the level of all social practice and all social consciousness uh, to, to basically become proletarian working class uh, um, governed. Um, And then afterwards you kind of stop needing to make political change because you already have uh, socialism. The other thing I should say too, she, and she's kind of famous for this phrase, socialism or barbarism. And, um, and that, and that, that kind of uh, makes clear why she's so committed to revolution all the way down to the bones, which is any kind of half measure, anything that doesn't totally eradicate the bourgeois uh, class uh, dictatorship is is going to result in the destruction of all human civilization you will know like you will eventually get to a point where the you know the drive of um of capitalist production turns everybody into sort of a lower being and uh, is is not able to you know maintain this kind of like sense of 
like you know human human consciousness human being as achieving something better um and it's it's all just kind of like venal um animal kind of uh consumption or whatever it is so um so it it really is a stark one or the other it's it's you can have the people that think that they're just getting to the same end point but slower and without any bloodshed are actually just committing to in the long-term barbarism anyway and they'll never get uh socialism so yeah rosa luxemburg i think she's a pretty hardcore radical and uh she's my marxist pick and uh yeah i think she's a good one good marxist pick rosa luxemburg and so um i can ask you this question you can take it out later if you think it's neat but um why why doesn't she think like it seems like the leninist uh response to the problem of uh you know trade unions who are happy with winning trade union rights is the vanguard what's the what's the the luxembourgian response to that so i think her biggest issue was that um and she she correctly predicted that that the the result of the vanguardism would be civil war um within the soviet union immediately right they they would immediately start purging um their political enemies um but i think in a more kind of like you know theoretical uh, bird's eye view kind of version of why why she would uh, get like a little bit less realpolitik is that like for her the doctrinal marxist point is that it's a transformation of masses right so when the trade like it's it's through those actions like 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 pushing for a specific goal like trade union rights that the masses tra- transform into something different than what they were right? right they become this new being uh and it's it's a bit metaphysical i think it's like it, it but she she contends that that those who have uh have have separated from that uh, goal from 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 seeing the marxist project as one of mass transformation are revisionist and that she is more orthodox. Ta-da! Very good. Okay. So Rosa Luxemburg as the the sort of next entry in the in the story. So I guess I'll go with my second one now. Yeah. All right, yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to fly ahead to a new century now. We're leaving the, oh no, Rosa Luxemburg is 20th century, isn't she? She died in the 20th century, yeah. Um, well, okay, well, we're gonna go post-World Wars and everything. Right? We're going all over the place. I'm gonna be going oh, backwards wow. again later, so. All right, well, my guy's still alive, okay? Oh. So, so there. Um, no, yeah, I'm gonna pick uh, uh, Charles Mills. Charles Mills, and uh, he has specifically uh, a book called The Racial Contract. So again, this this I'm going to pick because Mills, you know, Mills is historically a kind of Marxist, um, and and certainly this book has kind of Marxist undertones, specifically when he talks about um, worker exploitation and, and the kinds of things that you know um, have to do specifically with economics. But uh, what the book is, is actually just um, a, a sort of re-examination of sort of orthodox political philosophy. So this gives me a chance to talk about orthodox political philosophy for a second. Are you aware of social contract theories? 
Only, uh, no, actually, I was going to say only in the barest of terms, but um, I don't think I could, I don't think I could give you even a, a partial definition. So please uh, tell me. Okay, well, I'm going to give you the, the kind of funnest version. Um, but it, it's basically like it's the foundation of a kind of liberal uh, justification for the legitimacy of a state, right? Like basically the point of a social contract is it justifies why cops are, have guns and you don't, why um, states have more power than you, right? Why uh, the monopoly on the violence belongs to the government. Right? Why if you kill somebody, it's a crime. And if the government kills somebody, it's not a crime, basically. Okay. Right? And so it, it's like about justifying the existence of this, this thing that is more powerful than any individual member of society. So the basic story, you know, there's various versions of it. The ones that everybody, you know, um, learns in school are uh, Thomas Hobbes's version, John Locke's version, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau's version. Three, uh, three, three Europeans, but basically the argument goes something along these lines. Um, left to our own devices, we're really annoying and we do things that we don't like to each other. So like, if there's nobody to tell me not to, and if we're of equal power, I'm going to fuck with you and you're going to fuck with me. And that's no fun. We get in each other's way. So we make an agreement with each other and uh, everybody else that we won't fuck with each other. Uh, if, 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 you know, I won't fuck with you if you don't fuck with me, right? And um, we end up creating the state to enforce that contract. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so like um, the reason you have to follow the law, the reason you have to uh, do what you're told, pay your taxes, uh, not, you know, stop at stoplights, follow the speed limit, uh, not steal things, uh, not uh, hurt, assault people, whatever, right? The reason you have to do this is because you have, are a kind of signatory to this social contract with everybody else. You've kind of agreed that uh, I won't do that to you if you don't do that to me. And so then the state steps in to kind of enforce the contract. Right? And so the idea is everybody in society is a kind of equal person, right, under this contract. We all have rights that are guaranteed by this agreement we've made with one another. And so, like, you know, it's a, it's a nice fiction that we tell, right, to kind of justify the existence of what Hobbes called the Leviathan, the big scary monster that is the state that can come down on you uh, with no repercussions, right, if you step out of line. And the point is basically like for Hobbes, Hobbes is my favorite one of these social contract guys, I think, because he's he kind of is just like, look, like, yeah, the state is a big scary monster, but we need that. Um, you know, he, he's not doesn't have any kind of uh, other way of thinking about it. Um, so anyway, so that's that's the kind of justification for the existence of the state, right? That we tell each other, right? Like, well, it's okay if a cop um, shoots a person because. Uh, having a, a big scary monster in my backyard that can shoot people, even if they make mistakes, is better than not having a big scary monster. And we've all made this, you know, we all can recognize this rationally and we all agree, right? And so um, that is the kind of justification for the existence of the modern state, right? And uh, in, in social contract theory. And we can argue whether or not a state is good or bad within the bounds of whether or not it holds the social contract well, right? Like a, a state that makes a lot of mistakes and fucks up all the time and exerts power when it doesn't have to, you know, like that's a bad one, 
right? And, um, and likewise, one that doesn't come down enough. And so like, you know, there's uh, too much crime, so on and so forth, like arguably that's a bad one too, right? Um, but those are the kinds of uh, limits within we can talk, right? And so um, that's, that's the kind of criteria we have for evaluating our states, right? And um, Charles Mills comes along and he writes this book called The Racial Contract, okay? Uh, and I should say, this book kind of comes and it's kind of stealing its premise from this book by Sarah Payton called The Sexual Contract, which is, has a similar premise, but it's about men and women. Um, but, but the idea was that, and, and later they write a book together, um, which maybe should have been my pick, but I haven't read that one, so I didn't pick that one. <laughs> um, but anyway, the racial contract basically makes the argument that the social contract is a nice story, but really what it is, is it's a racial contract. It's a contract made between white people about people of color, basically. So it's a contract that, uh, you know, like the social contract is this sort of thought experiment. The racial contract is a real contract, right? There were actual agreements that were made by Europeans about their rights over uh, space and people that were non-European, right? And so as a result, it means that, you know, no non-European person or, or no person of color basically is a default signatory of the social contract, right? Um, they are the object of the social contract. This is the thing that we make the contract about, right? And so um, it's a pretty interesting book, I think. So in it, uh, <clears throat> he makes three claims. He makes the claim that uh, the racial contract is Unlike the social contract, it's a real contract. Like there are actual agreements and court decisions where you can go and, and see where um, there are white or Europeans making legal decisions that are then written into law about rights that Europeans have over the bodies, lives, property, whatever, of non-European people. Right? Uh, so it's a kind of colonial contract. Um, the claim that I think is neat is that it's an epistemological contract. So the claim is like, basically Europeans agree what counts as we agree with each other in, you know, in, in having this kind of social contract talk, what we're all doing when we go to university and learn this talk and accept it and talk this way is we're agreeing that we're gonna adopt a framework that cannot address uh, the complaints of racialized exploited people because the way that we talk about politics and the way that you have to talk about politics in order to be taken seriously within politics is you and I are equal, race doesn't matter, we are all equal under the law, anyone can you know, advance, blah, 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 we're all the same, right? And so it, we agree, the, the contract that we make is to agree to ignore uh, ex like exploitation along kind of colonial and uh, racial lines. And so like, I just think it's a, a really amazing book because it gives you like language to sort of explain why, um, you know, the kind of orthodox political philosophy has so much trouble dealing with uh, things like race and gender, uh, colonialism, um, because it, it's, it's a, what he called an epistemology of ignorance. It's a agreement that people make with one another to uh, 
ignore race as a as a viable candidate, a viable category for political discussion. So anyway, it's a neat fucking book. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's that's the one point I pulled out that I thought was worth kind of talking about, and like that's why I put it on the list because I think that's a point. Like Marx does this, like you know, he talks about colonialism, but uh, so I shouldn't pick on Marx because Marx is great, but Marxists sometimes do this, um, right? Uh, you know, like well, we're, once we're working class, race doesn't matter, right? Um, we can level all differences uh, and so on. So class and reductionism. Class reductionism yeah. right, is, the, is the thing. And so, like, you know, this is a, uh, and, 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 and to be honest, I don't really think that that's as big a deal as it gets made out to be. But um, there, like, it's, it's not not a problem, right? I think it's far more a problem in mainstream political philosophy. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a thing that uh, is worth taking up in its own right. And I think that the racial contract deserves to be on the list of uh, the syllabus for radical philosophy um, as a result of that. Well, you need some kind of way of articulating um, extra class radicalism, right? Absolutely. Like, and yeah. and if, you're, if you're able to, to vouch for this book in terms of doing that, then it, then it certainly has a place. Because as we said, Marx looms so large uh that uh, you know especially if you're educated by you know marxist uh people with marxist uh, uh inclinations you tend to sort of start to view things um if not through a class reductionism then primarily as a class condition or a class a class issue um but there are you know there's there it, uh, we, we're living in times obviously where you know you do need some other uh, frameworks too. Um, I don't think that class ever can be dismissed, but but as you said, yeah, it's uh, um, it's worth having these things. Zeke, uh, you said you're going backwards in time while I'm going forward. So who you got? Who you got next? Well, my next one is a guy named uh, Jamal Adin Al Afghani. Um, Jamal, uh, say it again. Jamal Adin Al Afghani. Okay. Was, uh, he was a guy who uh, he, he you know he did his work in the mid nineteenth century. Um, he moved around a lot, uh, and he is a little bit mysterious. Um, he that probably I mean his name his name probably was Jamal, but it was definitely not Al Afghani. Um, and there's some reason to believe he might have called himself Al Afghani because um, he was probably from like Persia, but he wanted to talk to like Sunnis. So what time frame are we talking about? What part of the world are you talking about here? The mid 19th century. Mid 19th century. Okay. So, you know, I think, I think, uh, I think he died in like the 1890s. Um, and, uh, we're talking about the time. Okay. You asked me that question. There's a very good answer for that. Um, because this is why I think it's important to add this guy into the list is it's basically the, period of high imperialism um, in, you know, the expansion of the British Empire, uh, or not even the expansion, the, the solidification of the British Empire all over the world, right? And, uh, and, and, and the beginnings of a reaction to that. Um, and I think, like, given that, you know, in a certain sense, we're still in generation two, three, four, whatever, of this British Empire, this globalized fucking thing um that 
you know, we need to have some type of um, character on this list that deals specifically with that. That's a radical politics that deals specifically with radicalism against uh, Anglo financial global empire, right? Um, which in a sense you kind of just did, but, uh, but this is in a more kind of like, uh, you know, kind of geopolitical way almost. Um, so Jamal, uh, he was uh, probably a Persian guy, probably from Iran. Um, and the reason he's probably called Al-Afghani is because he was probably trying to obscure that fact so that he could talk to Sunni people, right? Um, this is important because uh, Jamal was a, uh, he was a, a pan-Islamist. Um, he had this idea that, you know, um, uh, that, that we're talking about, so we've talked about, you know, organizing around class. We've talked about even organizing around race just now as well. Um, we've talked about, um, Bentham. Organizing what, around organizing. Yeah, whatever, whatever his deal was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a little bit more like our, 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 on, on the terms of civilization, right? So like okay. he, he had a concept that there's a, like a European civilization that's taken over the world. And, um, and that there was an, an Islamic civilization or there is an Islamic civilization that in spite of looking like it's beaten down and worthless uh, is just as valid and um, in, in fact contains the vitality or could contain the vitality to stand on equal footing um, with, the, with the Europeans. Um, but he thinks there's certain things in the way of this, right? So, um, so pan-Islamism is an answer to one of those things. Um, the Islamic people are, uh, are, are, they, they, they are um, dispersed uh, among several different ethnicities, right? So if you are thinking primarily in terms of, um, of, of ethnic nationhood, then you're not getting enough capacity there. You should be able to incorporate Indians, Persians, Arabs, uh, Africans, and so on. Um, and... Uh, the other, so, so that's, that's, that's one thing. And, and it's not only um, that ethnic divide because that at the time at least, and in, in a sense still is kind of foreign um, to certain parts of that world, right? It, it's more about sectarianism than it is about ethnic division. So he, he didn't want to get bogged down into a conflict between Sunni and Shia or any subdivisions of those uh, conflicts. So, um, so, Pan-Islamism in the broadest sense, right? He, he thinks that in order to stand face to face with the West, that, that Islamism has to be whole and unified. Um, the other thing uh, that he is sort of, this is where he's basically, well, actually both, both that and this, <laughs> both the pan-Islamism and also um, in terms of uh, in ter Islamic modernism, he's, he's an originator. So uh, he, he had this idea, um, which at the time was quite radical, because there were a lot of Muslims who, who um, basically thought of there was like uh, European science and then there was like Muslim science. And Muslim science was not new. Like it was, it was the science of the like 10th century or whatever, right? Um, and he rejected this idea. He thought that, you know, a, a civilization that had produced so many innovations was inherently innovative, inherently progressive. So it, the you know the, the the United Muslim world would be one that was uh, equally capable of modernizing and and developing uh, as the West is. 
So this uh, regressiveness or this traditionalism um, was a front and, and like a, a crutch and, and, and an inhibition on the Muslim world that could be um, dispensed with. Um, so Al-Afghani, he, he uh, like I said, he's a bit of a mysterious figure. Um, he traveled a lot. He, he, was, he kind of went in and out of the courts of various uh, um, sovereigns in the Muslim world. He also lived in parts of Europe. Um, there's a book that he wrote, uh, which I'm not going to recommend reading because I haven't read it, but it's called Refutation of the Materialists. And um, the, uh, so, so the, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, I'm sure it's translated from either Arabic or, or Farsi or something uh, and translations, uh, you know, like I'm sure they're good, but like it's it's not written for me, right? And secondly, he was he was more of an an orator than a than a writer. So he was he he um, he and his uh, his um, his like disciple or like uh, his protege, whose name was uh, Abdu, um, were like uh, they produced like uh, journalistic stuff, um, and he would speak a lot, and he was a political activist, um, and so what his uh, kind of uh, project was, was um, he was again, pushing, pushing back against the traditionalists. He was trying to develop a kind of Islamic uh, modernism. And, uh, and as the title suggests in the refutation of the materialists, he was talking about a way in which it wasn't simply going to be about uh, saying, okay, thank you, Western world for the railroads and, and the, you know, the bureaucracies and the steamships. It's about like the underlying, um, almost like sort of ideological or metaphysical groundwork of the civilization that can then like has to produce its own modern um, uh, outputs, right? So yes, it's very luxurious, you know, this is very comfortable. But like, as long as you're just receiving it from the West, you're you're tr entrapped into this new empire that, that is, is is sucking the Islamic world dry. And he was very much vindicated by this. Like, he lived through a period while he was in Egypt when the Khedive, who was like the you know the the viceroy of Egypt, um, was building the Suez Canal, was modernizing, was doing going through this whole like pro project of like turning Egypt into a like a Western style. Uh, cosmopolitan new state and uh, went bankrupt, got into debt with um, a bunch of European lenders. And then the British backed the Ottomans to like, you know, um, overthrow the Khedive. And the British basically uh, set in um, control over the Suez uh, after that. So what, what that kind of modernization, that kind of indebted or like borrowed modernization led to was essentially the same thing it leads to today with like the world bank and the imf is it led to um client client states for the west and uh it was a time when this kind of thing was happening a lot like the meiji restoration in japan or like you know there was like modernization in um in like uh like bolivar's colombia and stuff so like the third world or the global south was trying to deal with this problem in a lot of ways and um uh, Jamal Afghani was trying to um, answer that question by saying, "It's not a it's not a problem of we're not modern enough. It's that we need to have the groundwork in order to make ourselves become modern." Um, 
another good reason why we want to talk about this guy and why he should be on on like uh, a reading list is um, there is a there 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 has been like a genealogy from this from this revolutionary sort of change in in the Islamic world's way of looking at politics um, that's still like super relevant. So like the the this uh, so there's like so we we know about salafism right like the sort of like this is this this quite radical strain of islam that is um uh it involves it, it incorporates a lot of different groups in the middle east right and it's sort of split between the salafist traditionalists and the salafist modernists and so like when you talk about groups like the muslim brotherhood or if you talk about like qatar or turkey you're seeing strains of this modernized uh return to um, like a sort of an appeal to a sort of a, an originating Islamic world. He's talking like Salaf, Salaf, the word means like the pre, the, the predecessors. So it's a lot of their, their, uh, belief systems is about like the first three generations of Muslims was like perfect. And then everything else in a sense decadence. Right. And so what, what, uh, what Afghani's idea is, is that like, if we live like the predecessors, then we are modernizing, then we are able to transform and, and, and move forward beyond like the stagnation. Um, and it's, it's a little bit fucked up because it gets entrapped into this idea that you, uh, must engage and must modernize with this, like, um, this exploitative system and you must kind of like, you know, grapple with, with the West, um, and try and try and match it. Uh, and yeah, you can see some problems there. So, um, uh, I think he's a, a very interesting figure and, um, and, you know, one that, uh, uh, one that, one that is sort of exemplary of this kind of idea of like kind of reacting to, um, to, to the reality that we now live in a, in a, in a globally dominated world that has, you know, emerged out of one like power center and, uh, and yeah, like, uh, and, and trying, trying to come up with a, a right down to the roots re uh, response to that. Okay, it's your turn. All right. Good pick, Zeke. Solid pick. And, and it, harpens, it, it harkens back to, to our usual kind of, or one of our, the themes of this podcast, which is the sort of uh, scramble of the 19th century to control the world by the, the you know, various empires of Europe. Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, that is where my head goes. But that's good. Like, you know... Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't know about that guy, so I'm glad we took care about him. Yeah, I mean, I think he's fairly significant, and and, and uh, you'd have to probably um, either, like myself, go on Google wormholes or go to an Islamic studies course to have heard of him, because I don't think his name is widely known generally. All right. Well, for my final pick, I kind of cheated. So I, instead of picking a book or a figure, I, I picked the prison abolition movement. Wow. Okay. Um, because I think, you know, one of the problems with Marx is that the Soviet Union fell. <laughs> right. And, and so, like, it's hard to think of actually existing struggles now. In, and so to avoid this turning into a kind of uh, historical study exclusively, I thought it was important to pick something that is ongoing and that has had tangible gains in the last 
20 years or whatever, right? So I think that the prison abolition movement is, neat, is, a, is a good pick. You know, uh, it's hard to, to, to be a politician now without having to address something like prison reform or justice reform or whatever, right? Um, and, uh, and it's also like for, mo for lots of people, it probably seems like this is kind of just coming out of nowhere, right? Like, whoa, where did this uh, upset about abolishing, abolishing the police? Like, my God, right? Where did this demand come from? And so I think it's, it's important to kind of, you know, like realize that this isn't just the screaming of uh, some upset people out of nowhere, that this is like a complaint that's been building and articulated and given voice to through philosophy and theory, um, you know, for, for a long time now. Um, and I also think it's kind of a neat bookend because the father of the modern prison is none other than uh -huh. Mr. Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, oh, yeah. who was himself a reformer of his day, right? But anyway, that's that, that was something I meant to talk about when I talked about Bentham was his, uh, but and we talked about it in another podcast, which I can't remember which one, the, the psychopolitics one. We talked about Psycho, Bentham and yeah. his idea of the panopticon. But anyway, prison reform system. And so I've got, I've got these two books from, from uh, the prison abolition movement. The first is uh, by Angela Davis. It's called "Are Prisons Obsolete?" Question mark. And guess what the answer is? Um, maybe. Yes, of oh. course they are. Okay. And then <laughs> the other one is uh, Michelle Alexander's book, "The New Jim Crow." Okay. And so, like, um, basically, you know, I think this is kind of these things kind of go in their hand in hand a little bit with. The, the Charles Mills idea of a kind of epistemology of ignorance, right? Like the, the story that we're taught about prisons and what they're for is that they're for, you know, we get told to, we get, we get told sort of like conflicting stories often, right? On the one hand, we're told that they're there to serve as a deterrent and to punish people who've done bad things, right? And then on the other hand, um, they're there to uh, rehabilitate criminals, which was kind of Bentham's idea. These are rehabilitation machines, right? And they're there to, you know, take bad people and turn them into good people, right? And um, the, the New Jim Crow kind of says, like, that's not what they are. That's not what they ever were. That's not what they're for. They're about maintaining, you know, sort of uh, a white supremacist system. And, like, it's hard to read this book and not think that that's obviously the case, that uh, with the sort of collapse of... Um, what Jim Crow laws, right? Like actual codified laws that said black people couldn't live in this neighborhood and had to, you know, uh, work for less money and so on and so forth. Like basically that we had a legal exploited underclass. Um, when you weren't allowed to do that anymore, they basically ramped up the prison system. You know, the, the segregation laws go like this and, and the prison population goes like this, right? Uh, and, editors um, know Mike is moving his hands one downwards and one upwards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They can't see us. Um, so anyway, so this sort of makes the historical case. And then Our Prisons Obsolete is this um, book by Angela Davis that basically says, even if we wanted them to do those things, they don't do them. They don't punish people or deter anybody and they don't rehabilitate anybody. And so they're, they don't do the things that they're supposed to do. And so what would be, this is a more hopeful book about imagining a system that might do something else. Um, so those are two little books. And then the third book that I think would be, is a neat one is, is called uh, Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives by Lisa Gunther. So 
those are three little books from the prison abolition movement that I think like, if you want to get a sense of the sort of ongoing um, struggle that's sort of shown some actual gains and has had a kind of intellectual vanguard the whole time, like theorizing it and positing a new future that is, you know, obviously these people are informed by Marx, but it's not explicitly Marxist in any way. It's about a sort of specific issue and radically transforming one facet of society rather than radically transforming. And, and the claim is sort of like, you know, society basically is a carceral system, right? Like it, it, it functions through systems of control and uh, incarceration. And so like it articulates that and it shows how um, this thing that most of us don't think about very often because like it's intentionally kind of removed from the purview of the average citizen. Um, unless you're a black person in an impoverished community who you know, knows six people who've been in and out of the carceral system, if you haven't been yourself, right? Um, yeah, anyway, I, I think that this is a sort of like an example of, of ongoing radical uh, political movement that has a robust tradition of, of theory that is kind of, you know, post-Marxist, I guess. Uh, and vibrant, right? Like a lot of things that claim to be post-Marxist are just a bunch of philosophy professors jacking each other off, um, I think. And and there's there's room for that. Like I am all for uh, reading pure theory, but um, yeah, I think that I think that the prison abolition movement generally is uh, is one of those one of those places where the theory and the practice kind of come together really nicely, and you get nice books. And you get things that you can tangibly become involved in very easily. So uh, as a kind of ongoing practice and um, conversation about that is sort of a radical political movement that's still happening, uh, that, that's where I would sort of point. Very good one. Um, yeah, it's... Uh... Okay, I, I'm just going to respond by saying I also cheated a bit and... Um... I did something that is completely irrelevant to current times. That's fine. <laughs> no, uh, what I mean, the relevance is, um, I think that this, this one is, is going, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, something that can give us kind of a, a way of, of looking at radical politics as a concept. Um, and it's interesting to me for that reason. Um, and I, with apologies, it's it's. I'm going to use this as being a way to be a little bit critical of the idea of radical politics at all. Um, and uh, uh, I'm a little bit like you know, I'm a little bit uh, unhappy about doing that after what you've just said because that does seem like a very you know kind of worthwhile exercise of radical politics and or uh, or or the the study of it. Um, but where we're going now is back to 1510 in the Rhineland. Rhineland. Um, okay. So, uh, where's the Rhineland? It's like in Germany. So it's like uh, it's like the western part of Germany, um, around the Rhine River. Um, and this guy is probably from Alsace. Um, and uh, so this is fifteen ten, and I think the most succinct way to put it is. Like this is one of those places where if you live there, the Renaissance is something that happened to other people to quote uh, Blackadder. It was a backward place. And uh, 
there were a lot of is this is was was part of the Holy Roman Empire, which is a classic medieval political system in which it's a big patchwork of small states, uh, principalities, and centralization is really a a, a non-starter. Um, and so, in the absence of a very powerful figure uh, as emperor, you really have just a bunch of backwaters. And uh, this, there was a period of time in uh, in the late late 1400s, early 1500s, where the emperor was not so good. He was a small figure. So the the regional um, barons and princes were doing some some heavy duty exploiting of their small um, peasant groups. And it led to some peasant uprisings. Um, there was, uh, and and as 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 medieval peasants go, uprisings were usually uh, motivated by a sense of Christian um, uh, spirituality. So it, they they would take on this character of of a kind of revelatory social change. So a social change based on the idea of a Messiah or on the idea of a better world that manifests divinely or something, right. As through prophet, like as a prophecy would tell you. would. Um, and so there was a guy called Hans Bohm who like kind of like, you know, he, he was a charismatic and, and he started preaching and a bunch of peasants got, uh, you know, fired up and then got slaughtered. And then, in the wake of this, there was a book that came out. Nobody knows exactly who the writer is, so we call him the revolutionary of the Upper Rhine. And the book was called uh, The Book of a Hundred Chapters. And it is, the, this is why I'm cheating, because I don't actually think this, this really should be on the reading list. I don't think anybody should read this. <laughs> like, you can read about it. Yeah, exactly. Far, far, far more irrelevant than something that's been translated from Farsi or whatever. This is something that's been translated from another world. This doesn't make any political sense to us, right? But it's interesting to see how they work it. So you have the idea of, uh, you know, revelation or apocalypse, right? And Messiah. And what happens in this book is it gets transplanted from scripture into a, a sort of a political situ situation. There's the idea that there will be an emperor, Frederick. I don't know why he has a name, but in the future there will be a Frederick and he will uh, uh, instate um, a new world order. Uh, he will uh, conquer all of the European lands for Germany, which doesn't exist yet, right? But he's a German and he's going to defeat the empire of France, the empire of England, the empire of Spain, uh, the Latin empire. Why does the peasant give a fuck about that? Yeah, uh, the peasant it gives a fuck about that because the peasant is being exploited, right? right. And and they they're looking for um, something uh, in the material world that delivers in the same way that the Messiah delivers in the spiritual world, oh, right? So what we're getting is a so, sort of a consciousness, a little bit like um, like like in a this is the worst analogy, but like, like the way that, that I talked about how, you know, Rosa Luxemburg and Marx, they, they, they envisioned that um, there's already there waiting, like a group of people that could then become conscious and become politically effective. Like, that's what we're kind of seeing happening here with like an ethnic nation. Okay. The Germans are, so, are the German. So the word for this, right, in later years will be Volk. 
right? Right. This is the idea of a Volk and their... This is kind of nationalism. Yeah. Roots. Very, very early, right? And uh, uh, what, uh, what the book um, goes on to tell is that, you know, like the, um, the Bible is really, was really written for like Jews and uh, Middle Eastern people, right? For the, for the, um, for the Germans, there was a, a different um, scriptural principle that's been lost and it came from Trier. And it's, it's basically, uh, you know, it's kind of like the same thing that the pagan Germans used to have instead of the 10 commandments, they have these other commandments and their commandments are basically go over and take over everything um, and make everything German. Right. So, so the idea was once Frederick comes along, Emperor Frederick will show up and the German peasants will just start marching and they'll just be everywhere they're going to have, they're going to take over all those four empires in Europe. And then they're going to move on. They're going to go to the Jerusalem. Basically they're going to recreate the crusades, right. But they're going to do it right. And they're going to get, they're going to get the whole world. And uh, um, there's a whole bunch more like there's like, you know, kind of like kind of crazy stuff like like they just kind of like just replace all the names in the Bible with like instead of like, you know, the Canaanites, it's going to be like the Bavarians or whatever. But uh, essentially, it's, it's, it's just it's just this idea, this 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 transplantation of spiritual revelation into the kind of. Um, into into a, a utopian worldly ambition right that we're going to transform the world right and we're going to do it um because this like barely literate guy in alsace says so but he's written a book and everybody gets everybody like thinks it's impressive and you know like <laughs> so this was like the first mold bug <laughs> i mean it definitely has reverberations through all the nationalist movements, right? Um, uh, uh, the the pan-Islamic one not being omitted, right? Uh, when I talked about um, Al Afghani, it's 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 similarly um, uh, um, ambitious uh, in in the sense that it, it 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 describes a situation in which you get the result that you you need in order to liberate your particular group from the oppressive material conditions that they're in, but without kind of like negotiating with other political groups, you just kind of like steamroll them all. You don't have to actually deal with the um, negotiations and, and, and the, the compromises. It's, it's just this. It's creative, if you will. Revel revelation, right? Or, revelation. or like apocalypse, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and so, so this is, this is the critique of, of radical politics, right? Is that, um, you, you, you have an ideal and, and it's an extreme example, extreme example when we're talking about like ethnic purity, right? Like we're talking about the German people taking over the entirety of the world. How, you know, I'm sure we can imagine how that could go wrong. Um, <laughs> so like, like there, that, that's, that's the, like the sort of when you, when you make your, your first principle or utopian principle based in ethnicity, um, you, you, you start to get, a, a nasty feeling, but anything really, um, any ideal that, that, uh, should be held above the actual political process, uh, that should be held above like that. So that you need purity of thought, purity of, um, like, you know, principle rather than, uh, the ability to work within the material system that you have in front of you, 
um, that that is uh, any kind of compromise is is betrayal. That's the kind of um, the thing that the radical can't accept, uh, right? So so you have like kind of a, a line where on one on one side of the line you put one foot and that's radicalism, and the other side you get totalitarianism or something, right? So. I picked this particular guy because, you know, it's kind of a curious historical example and seems like an insane person. But on the other hand, it, it's, it's very, on, honestly, it bears out, you know, all the way through 20th and 21st century politics very, very clearly. And uh, um, I think there is like, you know, there's, there's strong arguments for why you should maintain dedication to class consciousness and to, you know, um, you know, like, like uh, movements for, um, like prison reform and, 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 you know, like, uh, emancipatory movements for race relations and things like that. Um, but, but this, like, uh, this kind of, uh, this transplantation of the, the religious ideal of a millenarian or eschatological, uh, revelation into the political world is, a, is an awkward one. And it results in like a lot of crazy stuff. Um, so I, I wanted to bookend with that. Good bookends. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that that was neat. We should probably. I don't know if we got time for honorable mentions. What do you think? Yeah, we should just we should just shout them out. I mean, it's gonna we're, it's gonna be a long episode, so we might as well add a five. Maybe minutes. we should just uh, save them for a part two sometime. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. But what? Let me. I I am kind of curious. What's on your your honorable mentions list? Uh. So. I mean, we already talked about it, but obviously Subcommandante Marcos, who has a new name now, the, the Zapatista guy. Um, Does he have a new name? Yeah, he has a new name. Galli- Subcommandante Galliano something. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, there's that guy. And uh, he's... he's. Um, well, don't, don't spoil it. So Subcommandante Marcos. Yeah. That's one guy. Uh, so yeah, another one was, was Julius Evola. Um, so that, that, that fell under my list of, uh, you know, right wing ones. Um, okay. Who, who I decided against. He, he's like the super fascist guy. You remember? I think we talked about. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, so him, uh, we'll say. Maybe we should, so, so the, here's another call to action. If you've made it this far and you're still listening. Mm-hmm. What do what the listeners want to hear the next little syllabus on? Crazy right-wing extremism? Because uh, I had on my list was uh, Paolo Freire's book, uh, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Nice. What is that? Uh, well, I, I don't want st- to spoil right. it, but it's sort of a, it's a classic kind of Latin American uh, Marxist book, uh, specifically about kind of... Um, doing your praxis uh, in, the, in the places people are. So, so this is about, you know, it's kind of a book for people who are teachers uh, about how to teach like a Marxist, basically, teach like a revolutionary. Um, but it's full of all kinds of other things. It's, it's a neat book. Um, but anyway, so without, my point was, you know, we could do a kind of Latin Americanist uh, episode with Subcomandante Marcos and Paulo Freire, and I don't know if we could figure some other shit out. Or, uh, or even just a you know, Franz Fanon was on my list of. of that seems like an obvious one. Yeah, that, that 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 should be on there. Yeah. So um, send us some likes and send us some hearts. Keep those hearts going for uh, Franz Fanon. 
Yeah, and just, you know, let us know who we missed. Obviously, we missed tons of people, right? Yeah. Like, we did three each, but um, if you don't know shit about radical politics, those are six things that would be worth checking out, I think. What do you think? Well, other than the last one, because it's ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> the others, yes. And you fortunately gave several books uh, under the prison reform one, so if you're really desperate to read things, you got like a three for one there. There you go. All right, well, good one, Zeke. Call to action. Just a reminder, Bird Fan at Bird Fanzies is taking at your Bird request. Fanzies. Yeah. Um, Follow me. And send that's who you should send. Oh, actually, you know what else I wanted to do? Um What's that? direct people to the WordPress. But oh yeah, the WordPress. You have you written a new one in No, it's been a long time. Um But you're getting back to it? Well, so uh I would like to kind of integrate it into that like as long as we're you know doing calls to action i just wanted to like kind of give people a multimedia experience if they if they want one so yeah we should at least post links to episodes and you know like this one has a reading list we could post the reading list exactly exactly we should yes. put that in the episode notes and uh tin politics that's t-i-n politics.wordpress.com so you can find a few things i've written and hopefully will write again um and I'll put that in the notes too. Cool. Uh, what's the most radical way we can sign off? Yeah, I can't believe we made it this far without being like radical. <laughs> uh, yeah, I took the word too seriously. Um, hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>